Hello, fellow tennis nerds. I hope all is well. Today, I have a very special guest, uh, a guy I've been watching on YouTube since quite a while. Uh, he's the OG of tennis racket reviews, I would say, uh, with his team and um, and has been at Tennis Warehouse a long time, a legend in the game. Chris Edwards, welcome to the Tennis Nerd Podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. It's good to be here. We chatted quite a bit during the event for the New Gravity in, uh, in Kennelbach. Uh, but you're quite a busy guy, and you've been to the BNP Paribas, the Indian Wells. Uh, I mean, how was that this year compared to previous years? Um, it was crazy this year. It was super busy. Um, amazing turnout. The middle Saturday was just packed. I've never seen um, that many people at that event. Everyone was just, you know, loving being back at the BNP, I think, and really enjoying the tennis. There's some great tennis there this year. And um, we had the Tennis Warehouse tent uh, with all the top brands in there for rackets, shoes, strings, bags, accessories, stuff like that. Um, and it was rocking every day. So uh, yeah, our staff were working hard there, but having a good time too. So yeah, it was good. Yeah, I one year I want to come out there because it looks like paradise for tennis lovers. Like there's, I mean, all the players, all the brands, and also you have these endless courts in the in a beautiful setting. It seems fantastic pretty much, right? It was amazing. This year, too, we've had um, a ton of rain here in California and that snow on the mountains between us and Indian Wells. And so the backdrop this year was amazing, just snow-capped mountains. And then you have the heat of the desert that you're in, you know, enjoying sort of 70, 80 degrees sunshine <clears throat> with this snow in the background. So it was, yeah, it was really beautiful. And then one of the things I think that really makes that the tournament, my cats are attacking each other. One of the things that makes that tournament... Um, special is uh the practice court situation there you get to be right up against the practice courts and all the guys are out there playing sets mostly um the the women tend to hit with their coaches or they might be hitting with doubles partners etc but the guys on the atp side they're usually paired up with another player and they play practice sets and so you can see amazing matches on the on the practice courts. I mean, going back a few years now, I remember watching Tommy Haas and and Roger Federer play a really entertaining set. It was some of the best tennis I've ever seen. It was on the practice course of the BMP. So great tournament. Yeah, it must be. And I think it's also very um, exciting that you have that practice because I think sometimes practice sessions are more entertaining to fun partly because you get closer. So you're like, you can be probably right behind the player which you, where you see the pace. Uh, in a stadium that's pretty big, you, you're not going to maybe see the pace as well or the ball flight or how hard they hit. Uh, same with, I mean, on TV with the bird's eye view. So usually when you have yeah. uh, some YouTubers always around the practice courts, they they publish some um, some some practice content. And I love watching it. It's just great to, to watch. Yeah, you can really get down court level there and see the shape the players are putting on the ball. And it's really eye-opening, you know, how much net clearance they get with pace and still getting the ball to dip and curve for an angle or, you know, down the line winner, whatever they, uh, the pros are really working the ball with a lot of spin. And I think that's something you don't get from the TV angle necessarily. So, Would, would you think that is something I've been toying around with and I sometimes discuss it with people, like sh should they change the TV angle or maybe do a more of a 50-50 or 30-70 split of a lower angle? Because now with camera technology and everything, they can have it. And some tournaments, they have it up like, really high up and it's quite the ball looks like it's so slow and people think that tennis players you know they can walk over to the other side while you know when you play a hit with anyone on a decent level like a high like ATP guy you, there's no chance I mean this is so fast paced like it's it's insane how heavy the ball is you know 
Yeah, it's um, the core coverage these days is insane. And, um, you know, you watch players like Alcaraz, Carlos Alcaraz, where he covers the court, what he can do with the ball when he gets there after covering the court. You know, Djokovic is obviously one of the best at that, of just scrambling and still coming up with an amazing shot. And just the the way they can change directions, the way they can slide and cover the court is, is amazing. And I think the only way you really get a true sense of that is watching live tennis. So highly recommend everyone get out if there's a tournament within reach of them, you know, to go out and check out some pro level tennis, men's or women's. Um, it, it's the level is just is crazy. And I think, it, you know, whenever I come back from the BMP, I just can't wait to get out and hit balls again and and try and replicate what I've just seen. So uh, definitely it's inspirational as well. Yeah, I think that it's, and also you learn just by passively watching, I think you can learn a lot from how the pros play. So not, I mean, going to a coach, obviously the best idea if you can, but but then like just watching how do they actually hit the ball and move. If you can study that in a close way, I think it's a, it's a good idea. But, but I was going to ask you also about, because you've been, how long now at Tennis Warehouse? 20 years? Am I correct in this? Yeah, yeah, I started in um, 2003. So in February this year, it was 20 years for me there. Yeah, it's been... It's been a fun ride. It's been a uh, fun time. My job has changed a lot since I've been there. <clears throat> I was a journalist before um, before I went to Tennis Warehouse and obviously a tennis player for a long time. And so T-Dub really tied those two things together. It was all written content when I first went to T-Dub. So, uh, um, you know, written reviews, a uh, lot of product descriptions, uh, moderating the message board, always a fun job. Um and things like that. So uh, now, obviously, we do a lot of video work too. So, yeah, things have changed a bit, but uh, it's been a really fun thing to be a part of, fun part of the growth of Tennis Warehouse. And uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Twenty years has just flown by. Yeah, I can imagine. And now you you can see also like in your team and the I mean you have a core group of playtester like Troy Michelle and so on that have been there a long time with you, not as long as you have obviously, but but a long time, and. It, I think what resonates through the screen is that you have a true passion for testing rackets and the products and tennis as such. And I think that is what works a lot. I mean, I really felt that when I started watching a long, long time ago, uh, that it's like the passion for it resonates. And that I think that's very important, even for a thing like that seems pretty dry, like product reviews can be pretty dry. But this way, I think you built up like that first interest in the whole segment. Yeah, the team... Um gets still gets super excited every time a new racket comes in or a new string everyone's dying to hit it with what everyone wants to be the first one in the building to hit it um and there's just a passion we all sit in one big office space and we're constantly talking product gear every single day um it's almost telepathic the way we communicate these days because we've all been doing it together for so long so it's uh it's really fun it's i love being part of that team it's my second family i've got a big family here at the house and then you know, my T-Dub family is definitely my my second family. And, you know, we share that tennis passion together. So it's awesome. And do you manage to hit? Is it like every day you're hitting or or how often do you do you play? Um, I would love to hit every day. Uh, I'm turning 50 tomorrow, actually. So oh, these days I hit. I congrats. Hit. <laughs> Big congrats. <laughs> um, I, uh, I hit probably three times, three or four times a week. Um, and then try and give my body a rest. Thursdays is my yoga day. So. I always do yoga on Thursdays. I need, you know, the older you get, the flexibility becomes more of an issue. So stretch as much as I can. Um, 
And then on Thursdays is a day off from tennis. Every Thursday I do my yoga and uh, just try and stay healthy. But if, I find if I'm playing Monday through Friday, then the old injuries start to niggle again. So uh, I'm kind of in the maintaining phase, I guess, of life. <laughs> Not really. I, I know, I know the yet, feeling. But maintaining, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. And I think also when you play a lot, like I play more of this last two, three years than I ever done. And you start getting one injury disappears then another one says hello you know so that yoga day i think is so important i'm trying every day to do like a half an hour of, of stretching even on tennis days but then to have rest days i think is important if you can i mean if you're a pro player it's tough to have rest days but it's good for you anyway but it is to have that rest day because also you get more inspired next time you go out because otherwise it can get a little bit like like a normal job hey here's a cat i like cats yeah, as well. <laughs> we have three cats four dogs five kids <laughs> chickens it's a zoo at my house man it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty much it yeah, yeah. but that, that, that's nice you always have action in the house right yeah for sure yeah yeah so um i think that rest day makes a lot of sense and i i, I understand like also you testing have you noticed that testing can put more strain on your for example hitting arm than if you're just playing with one racket all the time or a setup do you think that it's true or do you think it's it's not really valid yeah, I think, and I've noticed this, I mean, when I first started testing a lot of rackets too, and then when I have a new staff member join the team, there's definitely about like a month, month, month and a half in where you start to struggle a little bit because as a tennis player, you get used to using that one spec. You know, most people just play one racket um, the majority of the time. And then when you're constantly hitting with different weight, balance, swing weight, um, takes a toll and, you know, I think about a month and a half in, they start to feel it a bit and then their body adapts. And now I'm pretty used to it. And I'll hit, you know, five or six rackets in a hitting session, plus different strings in my regular rackets too that I'm testing. So um, I think you build up a tolerance. But I think for me, it's just uh, the overuse, you know, stuff. Those are the kind of knees, hips, um, right wrist, you know, those things that just take a beating because you're using them all the time. So it's it's good to give those those parts of the body a break and do something different. Yeah, and tennis is quite repetitive. So that's the thing also, like that's that's overused injury is sometimes people forget. They think always like tennis elbow just comes from stiff rackets, stiff strings, which is not, uh, you know, 100% true. It's, it's it's that overuse technique and everything that that kind of plays a part in that usually. And I I, I assume that you notice that the same when you, when you test. Uh, so how far ahead are you usually with your testing? Like, so how much do you know about rackets that we regular people, I was going to say, <laughs> don't know? Um, sometimes, you know, a year and a half, two years. Um, sometimes it's right before, depending on the brand, depending on the product. Um, sometimes brands reach out to us and they're developing a new X, you know, um, racket and and they want our feedback early on. And so we'll be pretty integral hitting first round second round prototypes third round prototypes and then um and then finally we'll get to hit the cosmetic samples right before the launch and then other times we get the rackets sometimes you know at launch you know there's if there's production issues and they can't get us samples ahead of time you know ideally we're getting the rackets quite a bit ahead of time just because you know we're going to hit them for a month then we've got to you know schedule the video shoot get everyone together shoot the video edit it so we want to be at least six to eight weeks out before launch um with the play testing as a minimum just so that we're we're ready to rock and roll when the rackets do come to market but yeah it, it really varies from 
brand to brand to launch to launch some brand, you know, the same brand we might test really early on something. And then the, the next phase of rackets or the next line of rackets is coming out. We might just hit right before they come out. So um, yeah, it's all over the place. Do you, I mean, I, I, I find usually the, the most fun part is being a part of like the prototype. I've been that in, in the past once or twice, but I guess you've been that for a lot of projects. Do you feel like the racket companies usually listen to your feedback this early on in the process? Um, they do. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, sometimes we're super aligned with where the brand is going. Sometimes we're not, you know, and then that's when we then might have follow-up meetings in the conference room and really talk about our findings versus their findings, or, you know, could be a team call if it's a European brand or whatever. Um, and so, you know, Sometimes it's like we're we're so aligned and we're like, okay, everyone's cool and we're good to go. And other times we might not agree and then we give our opinion and happy to do it. And how they, you know, take that information and, and what they want to do with it is really up to them. Sometimes you'll see that in the final version of the racket. And sometimes, you know, you know that they've gone with the direction that they they wanted to go with. So yeah, always fun to be a part of it though. Yeah, I can imagine that and also be learning about the the research that goes into actually developing a racket. I mean, a lot of people might not realize how much work there is before a, a racket, especially if it's a new line. I mean, if you have an upgrade that is slight, it's maybe not as much, but it's like before a product gets to the market, it's quite a lot of uh, back and forth, uh, usually, I would say, at least. Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. We had one racket, it's a brand that's not in rackets anymore, and we had helped them develop this racket. It was sweet. Everyone loved it. Um, and then the guy who was heading up the development listened to someone else who had influenced him to go another way. And then when the rackets came to market, uh, they were way too stiff. And we hit it and we were like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, this it was such a beautiful playing racket. And then um, it was just a uh, lot of vibration off center, you know, just too stiff, too dead off center. Um, you know, and so sometimes, you know, we're not the only people that are hitting them. And um, sometimes, you know, they go in the right direction. That was a case where they don't. And that company doesn't make rackets anymore. So there you go. <laughs> so you better listen to you guys. I think <laughs> the message is clear. <laughs> now, I, I think that, it's, I mean, people with experience like you, for example, it, it's, it's, it's a blessing to have them for a company because you can give feedback also from kind of a what works from a sales point of view, what what your consumers like. And you, you also have this excellent, uh, although, you know, th this excellent forum, you know, with where tons, thousands of like tennis nerds get together and, and discuss rackets and strings, sometimes seem to add infinitum, right? <laughs> and it gets silly, but it's like a lot of the time, it, there's a lot of information. You can get ideas about rackets, you can share. And, and I think that would be a, a mistake for a company not to listen to all this information you have collected over so many years, right? Definitely. And, uh, um, you know, I'd say the vast majority of the brands, if not all of them, are looking at the message boards. They're on there reading what people are writing about their rackets and then also the competition's rackets. And they're learning from that, too. So um, it is a valuable source of information for us at Tennis Warehouse. Um, I, you know, I love reading the opinions that are on there. And then also for the brands and then for other tennis players, you know. So it's, I think, yeah, the Talk Tennis message board, great resource. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And have you had an occurrence in recently or maybe over the years as well, where you feel, wow, this is the best racket I've ever hit? And kind of the opposite, if we talk about rackets, like you had like, wow, what this is crap, and this is amazing. Have you had any of those? 
Yeah, I have. Um, I've had some, you know, obviously the rackets I've switched to over the years have been the rackets that I've really gelled with. And I've been like, okay, there's nothing else out there right now that I can play better tennis with. This is it right now. Um, and that's why I've switched to it. Um, there's also been instances where there's rackets that I'm like, well, I can win points really well. And if I was out playing tournaments every day, I'd probably use this racket, but I'm not, you know, right now. So, and then if there's a racket, I might enjoy the experience of a bit more, the feel, the sensation that might sway me a bit more that way. Obviously I like to, to win when I'm playing the other T-Tough play testers as well. So <laughs> I've still got to be able to play pretty well with it. Um, but it's not, you know, the winning and losing isn't be all and end all for me. I'm not playing college tennis anymore or anything like that. So now it's more for me, what do I really enjoy playing with? What am I playing well with? And what am I enjoying that feeling of, of playing well with? Um, and then, you know, most of the, I would say all the companies right now are making good rackets. You don't see bad, there's just way too much testing, way too much um, knowledge and experience out there to all the companies for bad rackets to make it to market. But there have been some bad ones in the, in the past and, um, I think the last ones that we reviewed that didn't review well would probably be, this is going back quite a few years now with the Gamma RZR, Razor Rackets. They were just a bit too firm and unforgiving. Um, but then, you know, they still, they have the Bubba, which does exceptionally well. It's 135 square inches. People love that racket. And um, so they, you know, they figured it out and they make, they're making good rackets again. So uh, that was the last kind of line I can remember hitting where, universally every model we hit we just weren't gelling with so yeah and you can also compare notes i guess that's what you do so you get that like uh, obviously it's not good to always test in isolation but to have like you have a group of people you can say hey well your, your experience because it's such a personal feeling as well and then you know the viewer can resonate with maybe the player that fits them the most in terms of style and, and in terms of what they like and technique maybe so i think that is that is important um is there yeah, any reason yeah, to sorry. add to that, yeah, we have, um, you know, so we have a crew in, in San Luis Obispo, California, which is where I'm based. Um, and then we have a crew in Atlanta that are testing too. And then obviously we have the playtesters at Tennis Warehouse Europe playtesting and then also tennis only in Australia too. So we have um, a team out there that are hitting records. And so it's always good to get the opinions from each region. Sometimes we're aligned, sometimes we're diff, you know, we're a little off and, um, I think sometimes it comes down to conditions, you know, like a, there are rackets definitely like when I'm on a clay court, I like to get a little bit more pop, you know, I might use the same racket, but string it a little bit lower. Um, and then, so I think, you know, there you might look for a lighter, faster, more powerful swinging racket just because it's more of a, you got to get that ball going through the court a little bit more. Um, we're playing indoors mostly. So I, I think that definitely, you know, you get a really clean ball all the time. It's pretty quick. And then um, in Australia, sometimes they're hitting on the grass courts too. So then you might want something that feels really good at net, for instance. So um, I think regionally you get those little differences and uh, and it, it's fun to see how that, you know, affects the, the play testing. Yeah, that, that court you have is famous. It's uh, it's in the warehouse, right? The green uh, court. It's been there for it's, a while. It, yeah, it's in the warehouse. So it's surrounded by product. There's a product on, on two sides of that court and then the other sides um at the edge of the warehouse it's right in the corner um yeah it's uh the roof this the roof is pretty high there so you can get away with pretty good lob um so it's a nice court we put a really slow hardcore surface on it originally it's 
it's smoothed out a bit over the years or the hitting it gets. So it's a little quicker now than it was originally. I think is a good thing because when we first did it, it was tearing through shoes and tennis balls because it was really gritty. Um, so now it's smoothed out a bit. I think it's it's playing pretty sweet right now. Yeah, good spot to play. Yeah, and you have a, that set up with the cameras and everything, so it's good that you don't have to go. I mean, sometimes you do reviews, I guess, in a beautiful house there. With uh, I've seen that it looks amazing with the uh, with the sun coming in and, and stuff like that. But to do that all the time is obviously tough because you're weather dependent. So. Yeah, um, that one is too. It's on top of a hill, so it, it can get windy. Um, Central coast here in California, we do get quite a bit of wind. So it's we try and get out there early mornings when it's not as windy and, and shoot there. But inside um, at the T-Dub court, we have permanently fixed cameras. So that one camera angle you see the points from, that is a mounted camera. It just it lives in that location. And we just turn it on and off when, when we need to use it. That's good. I, I need to get that. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> might, might be tough. Yeah, I was really impressed by your your whole team uh, when I met them in um, in Kennelbach because you have such a good team with the setup and you kind of creative on taking some different angles and shots and having worked with production outside tennis. I think it's fun when you have like a really um, dedicated team that really likes to find different ways of approaching a review or something because I mean it's usually the same type of product, so you need to find engaging ways to tell the story or at least you know showcase the product because people want to see it in many many different angles i noticed like the is this cosmetic looking like this is this like this and and so on so that's just yeah uh the, the team we work with um you know so the behind the camera people too have, we've been working with them for many years as well and so we've kind of figured out over all the years of shooting reviews which angles we want to get you know and then the, the camera guys are always willing to try something new and then if it works, we get, it goes in the review. If it doesn't, you know, we know, okay, don't try that again kind of thing. And we use everything from um, like a gimbal with a cameraman running around following players to, uh, you know, camera mounted on sticks to we even use skateboards or rollerblades to follow players around the court sometimes to get kind of more like a dolly type shot. And um, we're fortunate that we have, we have skate warehouse as well. So we have some skateboarders and skaters and stuff in our... And our crew. Yeah. So um, we have those guys have experience shooting, you know, skate videos when they were young. And so they're used to rolling around and focusing on something and not bumping into things and falling off. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So I think the skate culture, having grown up into it and then, you know, skating and rollerblading when that was uh, the rage, it was kind of a camera culture, right? So you, you were like, everybody wanted to film the tricks and we, we had these old camcorders, you know, kind of cassette yeah. style camcorders. I remember that. So I think it's quite connected to the culture in a way, right? With this cameras and skateboarding and stuff. Yeah, it's amazing how many of our video guys are skaters, you know, and, and they, because I think they grow up like that. They're filming each other doing tricks and um, it's part of their sport. So uh, yeah, they tend to then, you know, if they find a passion for it, then they, you know, they end up in that industry. So yeah, it's cool. And then they're really fun to work with too. They're creative and and um, it's fun to have someone, you know, chasing you around the court on a skateboard when you're doing kind of like an approach volley kind of situation or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to be be very focused on the on the volley, not nothing else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and you're a surfer, you told me in in Austria as well, right? You you surf quite a lot. Yeah. So um, where I live, um, I'm about uh, like a 35 minute, 30 minute drive south of Tennis Warehouse. And I have to go past the ocean every day on the way in and on the way back. 
from work. So one way or the other, I'll usually try and stop off and get in and get a little surf in. Keeps me sane, which is good. And uh, yeah, it's probably one of my favorite just hobbies to do. Um, very different from from tennis. It's not competitive for me. It's just a really nice way to mellow out and have fun. Um, I am dying to get back in the water, actually. We've had so much rain. The water's kind of, with all the runoff from the drains and stuff, it, it's pretty gross out there right now. So I'm just waiting for it to clear back up and then I'll be back out in the water. Yeah, and it's also a nice way, like you're connecting more with nature. I mean, tennis, you're outside often uh, if you're playing, uh, you know, outside hard courts or clay, but you connect differently with nature when you're surfing or doing something like hiking or mountain biking or whatever. It's a bit of a different... And like you say, it's not so competitive. So you focus on, on the experience more than the the points, you know, so that can be better, I think. Yeah, the, the I think the one thing that's um, that runs throughout everything I do is like that playtesting mentality, you know, so I'm always trying different surfboards. It's an expensive problem to have. <laughs> um, but I quite often like trade boards out, you know, with other surfers and, um, you know, we'll trade boards for a couple of weeks or whatever and then swap back. Um, but it's just fun trying surfboards make a huge impact the style of board you have on on the type of wave you're going to ride that day on the conditions you know depending on what board i'll grab for my quiver um you know on the size of the waves that day where i'm the surf spot i'm going to go to the waves break differently um at bismo beach pier you know compared to somewhere shell beach which is a bit further north and reefy so um yeah the uh the conditions definitely make a big impact and then i kind of have a go-to board you know like i would have a go-to racket but i definitely have i put it for surfing it's more like three depending on on where i'm going and the conditions i'm in yeah uh, you can't go to the court i was gonna say but that is that is not true in my case with three different rackets and probably not in your <laughs> case uh, but like you say you usually have a setup that you especially if you play tournaments or you're competitive and most players would benefit from having one setup do you have a, a racket go-to right now that you're playing with I do. So uh, last year, year and a half, I've been playing the Speed Pro. And that was a racket I hit um, I hit a, a long time before it came out. And so I was fortunate enough to get a sample of that racket when it was just a blacked out racket and hit it and kind of the I just fell in love with it <clears throat> and uh, couldn't wait for it to come out. So then I could like, hey, this is, you know, because that was really the racket I'd been using for quite a while before, <laughs> before it did come out. Um, but yeah, I love the feel and playability that one speed pro 1820 it's really plush response too so you get that kind of like the you know the 1820 string bed is a firmer responding string bed but then the the frame is so smooth and soft and um and i like that juxtaposition of you know like the firmer controlled string bed with the really plush response of the frame and then with the speed pro too i find like easy racket to use i can whip it around get angles with it, it gives me pace when i'm having to defend um yeah nice feeling racket easy racket to use and then i'm stringing it with whatever string i'm testing honestly um strings i like i like uh yonix polytor drive uh links tour like that string um i really like their new hope power to have been hitting that one a bit big banger original rough favorite string of mine vocal cyclone Selenko hyper g ton of different polys i'm a poly guy so um, most of the time I'm, I'm pretty happy with, uh, with where the poly I'm using. Yeah. It sounds like strings. I like pretty much all of them there actually. And, and have you noticed that the string, how, how much of a difference the string makes when you're testing strings that perhaps you're not so familiar with, 
or you're not as in love with as uh, your standard fare? Do you do you feel that that makes a big difference to the how the racket performs? Hundred percent. I mean, we sometimes have debates in the office of like, would you rather have um, the racket you really like or the string that you really like and a racket that you don't like as much? You know, and I think quite often people are like, well, I can make the racket work, but the string is really key. <clears throat> and so, if you got a string you don't like and a racket you do like, you're just not going to enjoy the racket. But if you've got a really a string that you really do like, usually you can find a tension that's going to make it work in almost any racket you pick up. So. Yeah, string, it's, it's part of the racket that touches the ball. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really, really important for me. Yeah. I mean, how if I throw that question at you, you know, would you rather hit with a racket you love and a string you don't like or, or vice versa? Yeah, I, I I think I've changed a bit. I mean, I discussed this with some other tennis nerds in the past, but it's I think it's the string for me if I had to pick one. Because, the, like, I can play with, um, for example, if we talk about recent rackets, I, I tried the Pro Staff X uh, with... First, it was, I think, Element, or maybe it was the 4G Bronze, but it was old. So, uh, And then I strung it with all the power at like 23 kilos, just 50, 54 pounds, or 53, uh, 51 pounds, sorry. And um, couldn't really gel with it, felt a bit weird. And then I strung it up with 4G, a little bit higher tension, 53 pounds. And I was like, okay, now it's very good. Like it, it changed a lot. And like 4G is a stiff, but it's a very good string. And and if you have a string, let's say you're you're like, I love this string, whether it's Hyper G, 4G, or or Hawk Power, which is a great string as well. I agree. Then it's it's just like that familiar feel when you strike the ball. Is what you want. You can probably like get away with some of the. You know, if it's a crap aluminium racket, it's different. But obviously, if it's in the ballpark of a good racket, you know, but it's not your favorite racket. I think the string is more important, I would say. That's yeah. what I what I felt over the last year, so at least. And, and the other thing I get a lot, um, the questions I see out there, <clears throat> whether it's someone on YouTube or, or on a message board, and, you know, they'll be like, well, what, you know, because I have a one-handed backhand, as do you, and people will quite often hear, what's a great one-handed backhand racket? And I want to say, well, is that your strongest shot? You know, because I always recommend a racket to see someone's strengths. Because if you're looking to close out a match or it's a big point, you are going to look to hit your strength as many times as possible. And if that's your forehand, you're going to run around the backhand anyway and hit the forehand. So get the racket that suits your forehand, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's, that's the question I get a lot. And I always want to ask people, is is that <clears throat> your strongest shot? And if so, then, yeah, I can try and help you. But I don't want to say, you know, Tough to ask that question without offending someone. I think sometimes. No, no, but it's 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 also very common for me. And I I I used to be telling people like I mean, probably it doesn't really exist like that kind of one-handed backhand racket. Like there are rackets where I feel like my one-handed backhand is better, but usually, like I like you say, I try to move around the backhand because it's not good. So I have to then move around, and I like that anyway. You know, so that this for, for, and if you look at the stats, I was watching this video from uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy, this the tennis statistician. You know, he did. It, it's like if you look at the stats, you should go for the forehand at like any time you can. Like it, it's much better to just run around the forehand in rare cases where you players have a better backhand. Of course, use your strength, but like you say, I think the strength is very important. Because if if let's say you have um I was discussing this with like Riley Opelka, for example. His serve is 80% of his game. And he picks up a racket that is gonna make his serve weaker, but his 
backhand a little bit better. That makes no sense. He needs the 1% extra on the serve, so he makes sure he always holds serve. Uh, he doesn't want... If he shanks a few backhands extra with a, with a different <laughs> racket, That I think that is fine, but he needs to hold the serve. So yeah, you, ha you have to work with your strength. I think you're 100% right. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> tennis is such a confidence game. You know, and uh, you got to look to look to help out your strengths as much as you can and prove your confidence as much as you can. And that's, that's how you're going to be the most successful tennis player you can be, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and you like, if you look at the stats, I was also looking at that, like, you know, serve plus one is so important. How you build up your serve plus one. I mean, a point is not that many shots. So your strengths are very important in, in actually like taking charge of the point or, or at least making that winning passing shot if you're more of a defensive player. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that sometimes people get into their head that, you know, they, they feel they, they feel like they look stupid if they don't hit so many backhands or they slice the backhand. So they want to, and they want a racket that works for the backhand, but then that usually it, it's going to be uh, uh, some kind of, of uh, compromise. I mean, every racket is a compromise. There's no perfect rackets. I mean, that is, that is the thing. You have to find something that is, is kind of like, works well for all your shots but it at least the best on on the strength i would say yeah and i mean you know getting back to the whole you know racket for a one-handed back i've always been a huge fan of mids on the one-handed backhand mid-size head just cuts through the ass so nicely the the you know the swing is way more linear i think with a one um than on a forehand or or, or a two-handed backhand which can get way more sort of windshield wiper like unless you're someone like michelle who hits flat off both wings regardless regardless of what she's doing um so you know i've always enjoyed mids but um and there's been mids that have worked for every part of my game and felt really good on the back end and the ones that have been like oh, i love it on the back end but it's you know it's too demanding for the forehand or it's you know i'm not getting the serve pop that i want out of it and so then it's not been a racket for me but you know something like a prestige mid always love those rackets whenever I go back and hit one and they feel great on the serve. They feel great on the backhand. And, and, and um, I had probably my heaviest forehand was, was something like that too. So those are fun rackets. Um, a little bit more demanding, obviously you can't whip them around as easily as, as something with a bigger head and a, and a lighter weight, but yeah, great rackets for, if you like to drive the ball, which I think, you know, tends to be the one-handed backhand swing. Those things are, are sweet. <clears throat> Yeah, and it's also nice with something classic. I think it's that's the true classic. I mean, we, I remember when we when we were at the the head factory and those two shiny like the the Pro Tour and the Prestige Classic in pristine condition were there on the table just for taking. But we we, <laughs> yeah. we were strong. <laughs> we didn't take any of them. <laughs> yeah, those they have a great they have a great collection of uh, of rackets, head rackets, and then also other rackets too that they've you know have piqued their interest and they wanted to take a look at and hit and and uh, examining and, and then they've ended up in their racket vault so yeah whenever i'm there i love going through the racket vault talking to the guys in there and also talking to the engineers and you know talking about all the crazy concepts and things that have been tried over the years um that's heaven for me you know I'm, yeah it's, it's fun and it's also there's so much history with every racket like if you you know, go to the MXG that Rafa tried or, you know, what happened there when Rafa tried, tried this, even despite playing so well with the arrow, for example. And there's so much uh, that happens behind the scenes. It's just not the racket as like a physical object. There's a whole story behind how that affects the player and why he decided or she decided to to try a new racket or stuff like this. And or why they tried to come up with this type of model and if it failed or did do well and so on. I think that is quite fascinating with the whole thing. 
Yeah, one time uh, over in, it was a long time ago, it was early 2000s, I was over in Austria and had visited Head in Kandelbach. And then um, myself and a, a colleague from work, we went over and visited um, Siegfried Kubler, who was a big uh, racket collector, racket inventor. He did a lot of like the hammer, Wilson rackets, white bodies, um, uh, kinetic rackets, all those kind of in innovations that came out of um, his brain. And he had an insane racket collection that was in every room of his house, there were rackets. He had a spiral staircase going up the middle um, of his home and there were just rackets on the wall as you walked around, you're just surrounded by crazy rackets, you know, strung with like piano wire. Um, <laughs> you know, the the rackets with two string beds, you know, he had like the Blackburn, I think it's called. He had all kinds of rackets and he also down in his um, lower level of his house, he had a really good uh, pro racket collection that pros had given me. He had some Boris's rackets, Steffi Graf's rackets, a bunch of kind of older uh, sort of 80s, 90s pros rackets in there at the time. And it was, it was phenomenal just to see such a collection. And then he had rackets going all the way back to the 1800s too, with the, you know, the offset yeah, yeah. Tennis style head. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was an amazing collection to see. That's the best one I've ever seen. Yeah. And there's so many insane collections, but I, yeah, he, I mean, he did write two huge books, like one compendium uh, about tennis rackets, usually a little bit older. I think he, that's, I mean, he started collecting early. But he he was kind of like a Tesla figure in tennis rackets, I would say. Like the way he he worked with with inventing, you know, the the wide bodies and stuff, the hammers that are not going strong anymore. I think the hammer hammered some elbows in the past or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he yeah. was um he was chasing racket stiffness too. And I had some conversations with him and he has resonance rackets that were um so you know, when you hit a ball. The racket is still flexed when the ball leaves. Um, you know, the string bed is moving with the ball, but the racket is still in a form of deflection as the ball comes off. So the stiffer racket that feels more powerful is just deflecting less. It's taking less out of your swing. Um, and he had invented a racket which actually came back to its original state as the ball was leaving the strings, but it was insanely stiff and they were they were breaking within 30 minutes. Um yeah, they were I-beam construction rackets, so really thin where the grommets were, and then um, kind of like a, an old metal girder, you know, like a, an I-shape. So you had the thin where the grommets were, and then the, the beam was was thick either side of the string bed. Um, but yeah, really interesting guy. Definitely a, definitely a tennis nerd, that guy. <laughs> People get into this, and they have these... I mean, I talk to guys sometimes or over like email, and they have 1500 rackets they have uh, 1500 pro stocks sometimes like which has been an expense of uh, magnitude because pro stocks are, are more expensive generally especially if it's like a player frame uh, and it, it can be like a it's almost like a problem that snowball <laughs> people buy more and more and more, and more rackets um and i i'm trying not to have i mean i have a bunch of rackets obviously uh, but i'm trying not to hoard so much and you know it's it's fun to have like a history of your rackets for example like you know maybe a history of the rackets you really liked like the, you used for a while and then some models that are special to you or maybe i mean i have a novak and an andy murray and stuff that that are personal frames so that i that i really like you know and obviously not going to sell them but for you how many rackets do you have at home like do you have any space with all the kids and animals and everything <laughs> um so at the house i don't have too many um i don't really i don't play on the weekends or anything so my all my tennis stuff. I mean, I have a, I do have a racket bag and occasionally uh, two of my girls play high school tennis. So um, I'll get out and, um, and hit with them 
during the seasons. Um, but most of the time I'm like nutting with buddies or anything like that on the weekends. And so I do have one racket back here at the house with like five rackets in it. Um, I have two rackets here, which I made. Uh, yeah, one, that's cool, yeah. Yeah, that's one with cool. head in Kennelbach I made many years ago and will help make. And then one with Wilson, which I made in Chicago, will help make in Chicago. Um, it was, uh, I was in there with, uh, Kina Shikori was in there and we both got to roll the graphite and put it in the, you know, the shaper and then put it in the mold and then the, the engineers did the rest. Um, so I've got those two brackets here at the house and then at work, I've got a ton. <laughs> I got a, a, a bunch, um, in my cubby, which we, we each have like a little locker area where we, we keep rackets. And then, um, I've got all the rackets that I, that I use on the, on the daily for testing strings. So I've got a bunch of speed pros. I've got a couple of rackets that haven't come out yet that I currently using for string testing. And then I've got, um, still got some TF forties. I love that racket. The, old, the original TF 40 with the 1820. Um, I still use those for string testing. Um, so I've got a bunch of those. I've got a couple of, uh, I've got one Puma and a couple of the Boris Becker Astusa power beam pros. Um, I still like to hit those. I've got about five or six wood rackets there that I, I hit. Um, when do you hit those, I, the woodies? Um, I hit them, um, usually like say Fridays is my fun day. So on a Friday, we're either going to play doubles at, um, a tennis warehouse or we're going to play dingles, which is another fun game we like to play. Or, and then quite often, because it's fun, I'll just take out whatever I want to hit with. So then I'll break out some of the vintage graphite or all the wood rackets and, and hit around with them. Um, sometimes I might warm up with them and then switch back to something else. Sometimes I'll play the whole hour, hour and a half, how long I'm hitting with a wood racket and just really enjoy that, that, that sensation again. So those are kind of my Friday hits. And then in our office, we have a massive... Well, it's two walls actually of rackets that are hanging and it's stuff that we're play testing. It's stuff that we've recently play tested and it's mostly stuff that's pretty new to market that we're going to want to hit against other things that we're play testing. So we have those available and then down right by the tennis court, we have a racket vault where we keep kind of the, the cream of the, you know, of the selections of rackets that have come out over the years. And so we've got, all the generations of, of rackets that we know people are going to want us to compare new models to. So, you know, obviously all the pure drives, pure arrows, strikes, radicals, um, prestiges and stuff. We all have all of those <clears throat> pro staffs, etc. cetera, um, with the Yonex, with the E-Zones. We've got all the E-Zones down there and the V-Cores and stuff so that we can hit them. We can go back pretty much to any generation of, of those select rackets that we want. Um, and we just kind of keep, I would say mostly kind of like the, the mid plus, the pros, the tours, those kind of specs, and then the lighter weight ones. Um, when we're done testing them, we donate them to, um, high school tennis programs, inner city youth programs and stuff like that. So the rackets that we're done testing with, we find good homes for. That's nice. I like that. That's good. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, it must be a temptation always walking by the wall. Like, okay, what, I, I, I want to hit this today. <laughs> it must be quite tough sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not uncommon to walk down to the court with six or seven rackets for an hour hit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's so, the craziest. You're, you're like burning through them pretty quickly, but um, yeah, it, it, I think it's part of the, of what we love doing. You know, and some, sometimes I'll just go down and I'll hit one or two rackets because I'm just comparing strings. 
same racket, two different strings, or same string, different tensions. Um, same string, one was pre-stretched, one wasn't, one was a slow pull, one wasn't, you know, so depending on on where we're going and what we're trying to find out each day, it, it varies. But yeah, most days I've got a few rackets I'm I'm hitting do, that, that. Do you have stringers to string or you have to string these yourself? No. Um, we have, I mean, we have a big stringing crew. So when there's a dip in um, in stringing and there's some some time, you know, we'll have them string up. And then we've got a couple of guys that are dedicated to stringing the play test rackets. Um, Troy is a great stringer. He strings a lot. Um, there's a guy named Jonathan Wolf who um, strings and likes to, he always does stuff like he was like, I put this new string in and then 30% pre-stretch and blah, blah, blah. It's always uh, an adventure getting a racket back from him. He strings a lot. He does our racket descriptions. So when you're reading, so, um, you'll read his pros on our, our website when you're looking at rackets. Uh, and he comes from the USRSA. So he has a long history of stringing and racket tech. And um, he is a fellow tennis nerd for sure. Great. That, that's nice to hear. No, yeah, because the stringing is time. I'm pretty time consuming. So I guess like if you're going to test a lot of rackets and you have like constantly other work, obviously, as well, then then it's uh, it's going to be tough if you also have to string all the time. You know, that's something I noticed yeah. as well. Since I string myself, I, I now I rather give them to someone at the office and he strings. <laughs> so it's like better. And sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I was I was an MRT for a long time. I haven't taken the test in the last few years to keep my um, MRT status alive. But um, yeah, I used to string when I first worked at TW stringing all my own rackets. And then over the years, just, um, you know, the department grew and I got busier. And um, and so now I don't string as much. I haven't actually strung in, embarrassed to say this, I haven't strung in at least three or four years. But That's nice. Um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, a, it's a luxury problem away and no, no, it's sometimes relaxing to string but it's like if you feel like you have a, a pile of rackets you need to get through then it can be a bit uh, tedious it, sometimes you're just so excited to hit the racket that you want to that happens to me at least okay now i'm gonna string it because i want to play this today or tomorrow or whatever yeah. yeah yeah i mean don't get me wrong i put my hours in you know back in the day when i was in grad school or whatever and i was teaching tennis and stringing rackets and you know, teach tennis all day, go to grad classes at night and then string rackets after that. And there were long days. And so, yeah. Um, and during the summers, you know, I've definitely spent many hours at the stringing machine. Um, so yeah, kind of fortunate, I guess I'm not doing that. Now I do think it is, if you're string testing too, you learn a lot from the string, stringing it. So I, I do miss that a little bit, but, um, it is, I'm not going to lie, kind of nice just to get your racket really strong. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a luxury. No, and it's true. It's a good point, actually. And and I sometimes when you string a string, you, you feel it, I mean, obviously more closely in your hands. So you're like, this is going to have a lot of give, or this is very lively, or this one just coils... Uh, or, or doesn't move at all for example like so you, you do sense the stiffness more how it responds to them to the machine you know and, and how you weave it and so on so that that tells you something but after so many rackets and, and so many strings also that comes more quite quickly just touching the string in the racket and playing a few shots with it you just yeah. usually feel how, how quick yeah, i mean wait sorry um you're how long does it take for you to have like i these are my first opinions like this is my first impression impressions about this frame um there's been instances where it's like i've fed a ball like i've been hitting prototype rackets in particular and i've just hit one and then they you know the brand has hand, handed me the next one and i feed that ball and i'm like oh this is the direction you know like you just instantly feel this one has that magic to it um then there are other rackets that you kind of fall in love with the more 
you know, you hit with them and you start to really get a, a sense of, of what the racket can offer your game and the sensation you get when you hit the ball with it. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's ever the same from, you know, I think it's even you know, like updates. Sometimes you're like, Oh, I really like the feel of the old one, but then suddenly you realize you're winning way more points easier with the new <laughs> version. Um, and so maybe you've lost that a little bit of that sweetness in the field, but you've gained um, precision or your ball is penetrating the court more, you know, they've done something with an update to make the ball go through and, um, and suddenly those those shots that felt great, you realize were sitting up. And the new one, you know, now the ball's going through the court, it's damaging the opponent, and and you're you know you're able to close out points. And so, um, yeah, it's just kind of like that. Something like that can sometimes take a, a little bit more. It's not the you know the feel you feel right away. The what you can do with the ball sometimes isn't as apparent until you start playing points with them with the racket. Yeah, I think that is very important that you try it in different uh, modes, kind of like, okay, match mode, uh, just hitting around. Sometimes the feeling, like you say, is, is fantastic. It's like, okay, I love how this racket responds to the ball, like this pocketing effect or a plushness to how you play. But then as soon as you start playing points, you notice like, okay, my balls are, my shots are very easy to handle for the opponent. So this is this is now maybe a problem here. You know, this is something I have to find, like either string it differently, customize it, or this usually pops up when you're playing points. You're seeing how different people respond to your shots. And that is always the, the tough part because finding that balance of power and control, like this is what every pro and everyone seems to look for. Like, okay, they want, this is, I like the feel, but not enough power, not enough control, not enough power, not enough, that, that's where it seems to be always... Uh, you want more or you want less kind of from the racket yeah i mean we've we've been working with beth pneumatic sands for a long time and um she's awesome to work with she brings so much energy every time we shoot with her it's um it's a giggle as well as you know uh, a, a learning experience and when she was switching rackets she's been going back and forth recently and um, she really loved the uh the boom mp and obviously she has it weighted and balance to her spec. <clears throat> she loved the sensation she got with that. She loved where she could put the ball with that racket, but she found it was sitting up a little bit and she was, you know, getting attacked um, too much and it was putting her on the defensive and then just couldn't press as much as she wanted. Um, and then she, she moved to a, a speed model and that was better. And she used the gravity as well. And that was better. And so she went with the speed. Now she's back to the gravity. So she's still kind of playing around. Um, and finding the setup that works best for her. But for her, a big part of that is, you know, she's paying the bills with how well she does on the court. And so she really needs a racket that's going to damage the opponent, put her on the offense and let her close out points, win matches and and be successful. And so classic point there, you know, love the feel and sensation of the boom, but is doing more with the ball, with the speed and gravity frames that she's been using. Yeah, and I think that's a dilemma for a lot of pros. I mean, I think what you're seeing, and correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, but it's like the pros are getting more and more into gear themselves. Like they're getting more knowledgeable, as is everyone, I guess, because of internet and information. But I'm getting a lot of questions from pros on different levels of the tour. Like, okay, is this for me? I've been, you know, they, they start getting second thoughts. I mean, then you have the more chronic switchers, maybe like Dimitrov now, he's back to a blacked out frame from his pro staff. Verdasco over the years has ask, been asking for a lot of rackets from head, I know that, uh, and so on. So I, I think everybody's getting more and more like, how can I squeeze out 10 more percent out of my gear uh, or, or get more confidence? Yeah, it's um, 
it's a tough time to be a pro. I mean, the level is insane. The way people are covering the court is insane. And I think you need absolutely every advantage you can get, you know, and if, if you've got a racket or a string set up or a combination, that's just going to give you that little bit more, um, you got to chase that and keep, and keep looking for it. So yeah, uh, it's interesting. I think we've, you know, Medvedev, um, Daniel Medvedev just switched uh, strings uh, right at the beginning of the year or like late last year. And um, he's using the new Razor Soft string, which is just coming out to market from Technofiber. And I was talking to the Technofiber team. I was over in uh, Rotterdam at the Rotterdam tournament and uh, got to talk to some of the guys there. And they were saying right before he made the switch, he was looking to hit, you know, he was asking for 17 gauge, thinner gauges of string. And they were trying to figure out what was going on. And he was looking to get something that pocketed the ball a little bit more, something that was going to give him just a little bit more on his shots. And um, then he was getting from, you know, from his his Razor, razor Code White, which I think he was using the 16 gauge, if I'm not mistaken, at the time. And so just looking for something that was going to open up that sweet spot, give him a little bit more zip on his ball. And with this Razor Soft, it's, you know, it's what he's he's getting from that string now. It's a slightly more pocketing kind of string, get a little bit more deeper ball pocket from it. And so, uh, you know, obviously he's been playing really well with it too. So it's it's working for him. But that's that's one of those small adjustments he was looking, him and his coach were looking to get on his game and, you know, and then they found it. Yeah, and that's always interesting when they when they, they tweak and you see sometimes results can go one way and they can go the other way. But for Medvedev, whether it's a lot to string, but obviously the string has kind of an effect on his mind as well. So it's like, okay, I found something now. Then he wins one tournament, and then he's like on a rampage. Like he's, he, I won almost four tournaments in a row. I think three, and then he lost late, right? Was it in India? He lost, he lost Alcaraz, Alcaraz. Um, yeah. at the BNP. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I don't think that was necessary reflection on him. I think Carlos just caught fire during that tournament and, <laughs> and did did Alcaraz type of things. You know? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah he's an exciting player. He's something for mm -hmm. the future for sure. Yeah, but that's fun when they, they test new strings and it works out. And uh, sometimes they test things that doesn't work out. Sometimes they go back and forth, like you said, with Met Bethany, and you see it with other players. Like I mean, I mentioned Dimitrov, he's he's been with a blacked out frame now, and he's one of those guys that keep tweaking a bit. Sitsipas has been on and off with his strings. So that it's like you know, got all uh, 4G, 4G got <laughs> all kinds of mm -hmm. Of combinations, you know, so trying to find that feeling or comfort or power, whatever they they're looking for. So I think we're seeing more and more of that. So when it comes to to tennis and and it's like well being, I mean, it seems the popularity is is rising. Uh, that's after I guess COVID, you know. Uh, how is and but they obviously compete against pickleball and in Europe paddle, which you you played a bit now when you were in Europe. Um, how do you see, like, from your end on Tennis Warehouse and your the group of tennis of sports warehouse, um, is tennis doing well? How is it competing with pickleball and so on? Yeah, tennis uh, tennis is still doing really well. Um, the courts around where I live and when I'm traveling, I you know always check out the courts and there's always you know plenty of people out there playing tennis. Still, it's tough to get on a court around here on you know on the weekends, especially in the in the mornings um before kind of the wind picks up and stuff it's uh it's you know it's plenty of tennis players and uh business is good um so no complaints there people are you know you can always tell how healthy tennis is by the consumables you know like tennis ball sales grips strings things like that things that are people are really burning through and need to refresh frequently and um 
and those segments of the market seem to be doing really well. So it's a good indicator that a lot of people are playing tennis. Um, you know, in uh, in Europe, you know, Padel is is really just insane over there. <laughs> the growth of that sport is really fun. I love playing that sport. It's uh, it's a great game. Um, every time I, I'm over at Tennis Warehouse Europe, I make sure to pencil in some time while I'm over there to get on the paddle court and play. Um, a lot of fun. A lot of our guys over there that are, are running Total Paddle now um, were tennis players and were part of Tennis Warehouse Europe, and now they've shifted more to the paddle focus. And then I think we have the same here with um, with Pickleball as well. And the growth of Pickleball, um, you know, in the U.S. is, is crazy, and it's hasn't gelled well with tennis players here. And I think a lot of it just has to come down to courts being replaced by pickleball courts, you know? And so that's obviously um, a very negative rub and impact on tennis players when they're, they're showing up to their parks and they're finding another court's gone. And now um, they've been converted into pickleball courts, but you got to see both sides of it. You know, if you step back and just look at it, there's, hundreds of people showing up every weekend to play pickleball. Um, there's not as many people looking to play tennis on the weekends. And so, you know, the, the cities and, and the, the clubs, um, you know, they're fishing where the fish are. And right now they're pickleball players. There's just more of them um, showing up on, on the weekends and to play and to play tournaments too. The pickleball tournaments get massive turnouts. I would love to, to show up and play like a four, five, five, Oh tournament here in, um, on the central coast of California and have a hundred people in the, you know, to show up and to be competing against usually them, like if I can get six guys in the draw, you know, so um, I get it. I get why it's happening. It's sad to see. I, I would love to see the growth of pickleball, not impact tennis, ideally, but uh, you know, there are budgets and things like that. And so you just have to kind of, of you know, realize that that's the reality of, of what's going on yeah yeah no it's it's the same with with paddle i mean sometimes they remove courts it's happened here Malta happened also in in spain but there's still quite a lot of tennis courts so it's not like a huge issue and it seems that there's a decent amount of crossover at least between tennis and paddle maybe not as much with, between tennis and pickleball but they're obviously tennis pros noah rubin and a few other guys that that are like venturing into pickleball because there's i mean i was more money you know more more hype around it easier to find sponsors if you're 200 in the world ATP, nobody really cares. You know, this is this is a sad fact of tennis. Like you can be an amazing athlete and to make money at a 200 level is, is is relatively tough to make any real money, you know, any anything mm -hmm. that's sustainable over long run or can build like any savings or anything. So uh, I get that, you know. Yeah, I mean, at that level, you know, you are one of the best, best people in the world at what you do and you're you're surviving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's strange. You're, you're, it's not a... It's not really a viable way to to grow, you know, a retirement fund or anything like that. You know, you're definitely going to have to look at doing something on the back end of that career, um, you know, which is yeah. it's tough. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. No, yeah, it, it happens, and people sometimes lose. Uh, like I was, um, I met this uh, 160 guy the other day, and and he he just like fell out of love with the traveling and not being. Like, so that this also happens because. If there were millions involved, like all the time, I think you, you you'd keep doing it because you can build up like a, a nice life afterwards, and then the retirement is is easier. Uh, but then, like with the grind that some players need to do, it it's, it's much tougher, I think, and to keep sustaining that like desire to go and and 
play in some tournaments that are not as glamorous conditions, you know, and and uh, you have to pay for a lot of it yourself. And then you lose first round of qualies and or third round or whatever, and you're like, oh no, I didn't get anything here, you know. It's a rough. Yeah, one. and at that level, you don't have a team around you. You know, you're. I mean, I've never, I've never done it, but I've, you know, we've had guys that have come through tennis warehouse that have that have gone on the tour and chased points and uh, and then we've worked with people that are you know that are coming up through the ranks and cat tails getting on the camera um and uh you know you're you have to do everything you're managing your travel you're managing your where you're going to stay how you're going to get your racket strung you know that's it's tough to travel with um a stringing machine and so that's an expense you got to factor in you know even if you've got someone helping out with the string you're still paying minimum 20 bucks a racket probably at every tournament to get it strung um you know you don't know whether you're going to go deep or go out early it's the luck of the draw sometimes it's how you're feeling how you're playing and so the logistics of it all you know that back end of it people don't think about when you're you know 200 and and lower ranked um in the world and those are things that you've got to be managing and controlling yourself and that's that's a lot and i think you know for the people that do manage to do it um that's you know it's tough to do that i think without getting burnt out yeah yeah it's it's a it's a stress because like the if the results are not there it's not you just comp- like doing the job like if you're in another business you if you do your job you you will be fine you know but uh, in tennis without winning matches even if you work out you 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 do everything preparation you still might lose seven six thirds at tiebreak and you end up with nothing this is quite yep. a brutal like uh, existence to be in you know uh, very very tough i can imagine and um you know and then when you've got all this stuff going on that you've got to organize where you're going to be next you've got to set your whole calendar um you know organize your practice your training and everything and make sure you're in your best possible state when you enter the tournament um and then you've got to go out and actually focus on your tennis <laughs> you know yeah. and enjoy and win those matches so yeah it's 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 tough it's tough world a tough life do yeah. you have any um ideas of how tennis could be better in terms of for the for the players obviously and, and I, you pointed out something uh but like you go and play a 4.5 5.0 ntrp tournament and i, I see the same in europe like i play these itf masters and there's like in the 40 age group for example there's like five guys and then you have two withdrawals or then you have three guys left or there's six seven guys whatever but it's 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 quite hard to get enough players to play these tournaments you know and um and that's something you know you want it to be a thriving oh let's do an open tournament where it's like 40 players 32 draw or something you know uh, but do you think there's anything tennis can do better in terms of of getting more viewers, but also getting more players to stay in it? That's a tough question. I mean, I think yeah, it's a very tough t- question. <laughs> yeah. I think if you're a tennis player and you're looking for a really easy answer, move to Atlanta. I mean, the the um, in Atlanta, the tennis community there is like nowhere I've ever ex- experienced anywhere else. It's phenomenal. There's so many leagues and um, opportunities to play singles doubles mixed um it's it's uh it's really special um so i'm very jealous of that um and then you know elsewhere getting that kind of passion it's tough yeah i don't have the answer for that um i mean i tennis is a i think you know the, the rise of of sports like um pickleball 
um, Padel, the learning curve is um, isn't as steep <clears throat> as, as it is in tennis. You can get on the court and then the first session have fun. It's easier to hold a rally. Um, you can have mixed levels on one court and everyone's having a good time. Whereas in tennis, that's much harder to do. Um, you know, when you're first learning to play tennis, you're picking up balls a lot, <laughs> you know, a lot of the time because you're missing or you're hitting it over the fence or, you know, you're hitting it into the net. And so there's a, there's a lot of just uh, patience required to hone those skills. Um, and, and so I, I think that's one of the challenges of tennis, just by its nature of how we play the sport. Um, you know, it's a tough game to learn and it's a tough game to play well. So I think what keeps people like us involved is constantly chasing perfection in this sport. You, we know we know how hard it is. And um, and so I think that's the real passion for tennis is um, is that constantly trying to get better at a game that's very difficult to play, you know? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I think think that was spot on. And it's it's tough. I mean, like there's hard to get any kind of ideas that are are not kind of hard to achieve, I would say. I mean, Francis Tiafo the other day wrote on his Instagram that he or he was asked in an interview that he wanted like people to be able to talk and be the crowd more engaged without it to be, you know, complete silence when you play a point. He wanted the bit more like other sports. Do you think that is a, a would that increase the engagement or make it more of a accessible sport or, but would it and how would it affect the players what do you think of his idea there uh tough one for me i'm kind of on seeing both sides of that i mean i grew up in england and it's like silence when you play <laughs> you know it's a tradition there um and then when i own practicing too was very serious and then when i came to the us i was 18 i went down to florida and was training at politaries for about a year and a half and you know the stereo is blaring and we're listening to billy idol or whatever music was popular back then you know motley crew and stuff on the radio while we're hitting and it was really different and i you know enjoyed it for a completely different um set of reasons and really enjoyed that energy and then i've had matches too when someone's been talking and it shouldn't be bothering me but i'm not playing well you know so now everything's bothering me and i can hear this guy's voice three courts away and it's you know maybe he's teaching a lesson and i'm trying to play a match and it's driving me crazy that's all on me <laughs> you know but um and there's been other times like when i played college tennis and it gets really boisterous and people are yelling and you hear people yelling for your teammates that are caught over and you're you know they've just finished a point but you're playing a point but you hear that and it motivates you to then try and win that point so yeah i've seen both sides of it and enjoyed and there's times when I've definitely enjoyed the silence and wished for the silence when I haven't had it. And then other times when, um, you know, I've gotten really pumped up and, and played well because of the atmosphere that's around me. So, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think he's got a point, you know, whether it's trying to make it more entertaining for people to watch and be a part of and show up at the pro level. Um, cause at the pro level, you're really end of the day, you're entertaining fans, you know, and, whether it's on TV or in the stadium. And so to improve that enjoyment would potentially then bring more notoriety, more money to the sport and make it better for all. But uh, when you're having a bad day, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> you want it to be quiet. You want to be able to focus and try and get back on track. Yeah. yeah I think that is, that's what you see a lot with the pros. Like some, if they make a good point, they start to be like throwing their arms up. Now this become very common. Like they, you want to get the crowd engaged. Like, oh, look at me! I played a good point. What you know, help me get over the hump of playing better or, or coming back in this match. 
Uh, and sometimes when people have the crowd against them, where they're like you said, they're not playing well, they're like, oh, this idiot in the crowd, this idiot in the crowd, this, this, everything <laughs> annoys them. Like they send their whole team away. Like, oh, you know, my mother has to leave, my agent mm-hmm. has to leave. We've seen that recently. So it, it's um, it's a complicated question because it depends. It's such a mental game. And if you're not mentally in a good spot, uh, and, uh, you know, a crowd will make it worse probably. Uh, but it can also lift you in a way. So it, it's like such a difficult question. I think, the, personally, I think the best way is to, is to maybe do some tests and, and see how, how people resonate with it and see if the players can play in this. So you have some tournaments, maybe like some exhibition tournaments or something where, where there's like you're allowed to to scream a bit or be a bit more you know loud and, and walk in and out of the, the arena. Uh, I think some would thrive and I think some would really hate it. So I think this this would be an interesting experiment to see, you know, how the players would react. And it, it, tennis yeah. is such a precision sport as well. So comparing it to basketball, for example, is a bit different because tennis, you're alone. Uh, you need to hit that serve, you know, that's a one shot, it's kind of like a golf swing. Imagine golfers not having any silence. Like it, mm-hmm. I think it would be tougher because it's a different sport than basketball in, in a sense where it's more like energy and and you play two teams and so on. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think here in the U.S., if there was going to be, you know, an avenue for that, it'd be world team tennis, you know, I think would be a good one to try it. Um, It tends to be, um, you know, they've been very open to trying new things and and different rules and changes to make the sport exciting. Um, So I think, and then, you know, maybe internationally, it's something like Fed Cup and Davis Cup, where you already have that kind of team atmosphere and maybe allowing the team to interact more with the players, um, you know, during the points or between the points would be, would be cool to see. And then I think if you just had a tournament where it was a free for all, at least the players would know going in that, Hey, this is going to be, um, you know, a, to- a tournament where I'm not going to get that silent moment, maybe to hit my serve. And I'm just going to, know that going in and, and have to deal with it <clears throat> yeah and you can maybe then practice that situation you you play practices with like loud noise or whatever i don't know uh, you can maybe practice it I, I don't know i mean sport is evolving as we know so maybe this will be a step where we evolve towards and uh, he has a point in some ways i think it's good that people come with ideas then if they work in practice they have to try them you know there's you can't theorize too much about it right uh, but tennis is a traditional game as well, so it's there's always traditions to to overplay, I, which I think sometimes is is a strength and sometimes a weakness compared to pickleball, where you can have like yeah we have pickleball parties, there's a disco vibe, the same in paddle, right? They, there's like uh, people with a like a beam boombox, you know, and they they're there and it's it's like a loud and people are laughing and it's like a fun social thing, where tennis feels more country clubish, you know, and a little bit staler. Uh, some might love that, but it's it's also a different to what it provides as kind of like an entertainment vehicle, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, it's. I think they're definitely both of those sports. Um, they're very social. It's you know, people go there and and look to you know to mingle, meet people, have a good time, socialize, <clears throat> and then with with tennis, at least you know, my experience in the sport is like people are going there and it's more serious. They're looking to just win almost at all costs and whether it's a tournament or a league. Um, I've had instances too, uh, when I was teaching tennis up in San Jose, um, back in like 98 through 2000, there was a group of us were all teaching pros and we would get together on a Friday 
clear our calendars and we would play singles and doubles at one club um, in the San Jose, South San Jose area. And it was great, man. We, everyone had a good time. The level was super high. Um, it was really social with some of us would hang out and have a beer afterwards too. So that was one of those really cool instances where I think we tapped into a little bit of, of what, what um, Padel and, and, and Pickable have going on the regular. Yeah, yeah, and in, in here in um or here I mean in Spain there's more of like this mixing. So you, I mean it's it's more maybe for beginner to intermediate level, but at least you have this like you you people go to play doubles, it's all fun, and you move around. So you play one set and then you move around, and the same for for paddle, for example. So it creates this more social vibe, and then there's you know a beer afterwards or or some snacks, and you you hang out. So that's sometimes like, like exactly like you said. I, I've noticed that like in these ITFs and and when you play the the, the seniors or the masters, which is called, that people want to win at all costs. So you they they go in with the mind that it's Wimbledon, and you go in with the mind that oh fun to play some tennis, and and we, we chat a bit in between. We're like applaud the other one's shots, and you're more like you know chill. Uh, well, well, they are like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that call was was a little bit wide. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> very funny. Uh, tennis players are um, are competitive. I think it's one of the most competitive minded people. I would say in sports, at least of the. I mean, footballers obviously as well, but uh, it's quite competitive. That's tennis. Yeah, I mean, I'm surrounded by him every day, and um, and so we definitely have a competitive mindset, and we carry that into most of our um, other aspects of lives too. So it's, uh, it's really fun. I, you know, I always enjoy being around tennis players. I think we, we share that common thread where we're competitive. We're used to trying to figure out things on our own, you know, um, fortunately, you know, I head up a team of, of tennis players. And so, you know, they've grown up around coaches and they're really easy people to be around and work with because, they're constantly looking to improve. And so you can have those interactions. Whereas when I've worked with people that, you know, haven't had a coach yelling at them or something when they were a junior or whatever, <clears throat> you know, you have to be much more sensitive. I feel like tennis players, you can, you can get away with it more, be a bit more casual about it. And, and they get it, you know, they're used to hearing it and they're used to figuring it out and working it out. And um, so, yeah. I like to be around tennis players for sure. Yeah, yeah, same here. It's it's a good the good group. I, I would generally say, and it's also nice to be able to connect over a shared passion. I think that's important in life in general. Like to get some hobbies and stuff like that. Uh, getting to your racket history a bit before we close. Um, you are now with the Speed Pro. Before that, you were with the Technifiber TF40, which is still, I, if I'm not misremembering mm -hmm. this. And but when you played college and when you like you were playing a lot more competitions and stuff like this. What was, how was your racket history kind of in a brief, uh, brief comment? I've always been all over the place. I played the pro stuff 85. I played the pro stuff 95. Um, when I was oh, at the 95 is a, is a quite, it's quite a rare one. Like, I mean, the pro stuff 90, you know, obviously, and then the 95 was a little bit different. Yeah. I've, I still have like three or four. Every once in a while, I'll come across one of those and I'll snag it, you know? Um, so I usually, that was a racket I waited right at, at 12, right at the tip. Um, because in stock form, that is a racket that kind of collapsed a bit in the upper hoop. Was the 85 didn't have that issue at all. The 85 would just plowed through anything, you know, it was a much beefier hitting experience. The 95 very headlight and just needed some help up towards the tip. And so pretty much all of them I have <clears throat> uh, are weighted with some tungsten or lead tape right at the tip there. 
Um, when I was at Boletaries, I switched to Don A rackets because Don A were the sponsors of the academy back then. And, you know, I got a bunch for free, so that was nice. Um, I remember I was using the Pro One International Mid. I got misshipped when I was back in England and I got oversized rackets. And so I just switched to the oversized and strung them like eight pounds tighter. <laughs> and um, and then I went into college using the Don A Pro One oversize in uh, 94. Switched to the Twin Tube Radical, the Zebra one. Um, Were you Agassi fan? Or... Yeah, yeah. Um, came out of college with that. Then I went back to the pro staff, 95, because the club I was teaching at in San Jose was a Wilson club. Um, and then in between that, I used uh, Prestige Mids at some point. Uh, Prestige Pro 600, I used those. I think actually 93, I was using Prestiges. Um, so yeah, it's been all over the place. I've used... Um, Pure Drive Rodex. I've used Pure Drive Pluses. Um, you know, I've used the PowerBridge 10 Mid from Vocal. So I've gone um, from really small-headed, flexible rackets and hefty rackets to lighter weight, thicker beamed, hundred kind of square inch or one hundred sevens. A racket I I love to hit with is the POG, but I've never actually used it for a sustained amount of time. But uh, when I was at Boletarius, I was using the, the Don A Pro 1 oversize, and there was a guy who, at the Prince Original Graphite oversize, and I was kind of jelly. I like, always liked the look of that racket. Um, so that's a racket I wish I'd spent more time with over the years. We still have some, obviously, at Tennis Warehouse, and so I hit him. Um, we've got him in our offering there. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really been all over the place. One thing I, I'll, I'll say is I tend to hover around a certain swing weight, Um probably like 325 to 330 is pretty common for me on the swing weight strung. Um, every once in a while I might dip a little lower or a tad heavier, um, but that's a pretty common thread. And then I always seem to end up on a similar kind of response by if I'm going flexible with the frame, I might go more powerful my string choice. And if I'm going stiffer beamed, more powerful from the frame, I'm going dead a string bed. And so you know, I'm I'm getting where I'm getting, maybe coming at it from different directions, but ending up in a in a similar place. And um, you know, the first time I had a pure drive, I was like, man, it's easy to win points with this racket. <laughs> you know, um, gives you just great pop, and so a lot of shots don't come back. And you find a way to put a poly in it, you can control it and get great spin. And it's uh definitely a lethal combination, but definitely not a combination for everyone, but you know, one that works for many. So, uh, yeah, been all over the place over, over the years and, uh, definitely a fun journey. And even to this day, I don't really know where I'm going wind up with my neck next rackets, which is just kind of what I gel with at the time. And that's where I go. Yeah. And I usually discuss this with my friend Henrik as well. Like it's, is um, it's not quite as fun if you're not always testing a little bit or like eyeing a new one, because it's, once you just have a setup and you play that for 20 years, that's not the kind of person you are if you're a playtester. You, I mean, you, li you like that feeling of, you know, going to... I, I kind of like that oscillation in between super power frame because it changes your game a bit and you get a completely different experience playing tennis if you play with a pure drive than if you bring out the Prestige Classic or even the Woody, which I also like to play. I mean, sometimes I love hitting with a wooden racket, the sensation, you dial in your strokes, you hit the ball, it's like a sweet spot trainer, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then it's fun then the pure drive and then you get somewhere in the middle where you probably should be 
but it, it that that part of of testing is fun like because you get the experience you have as a player with one frame and another is quite drastic and i think a lot of people don't realize maybe they play with the same racket whole half of their tennis life or something and when they start testing around a bit they like wow is this how different it can feel when you hit the ball with just a different different racket in your hand right yeah, I, you know, I think the best advice I could give to someone is just be open-minded. You know, um, you look at the Pro Tour, you see everything on the Pro Tour. You look at the club, you see everything at the club. Um, and so obviously, you know, different strokes for different folks, things are working differently for, for everyone. And, um, you know, if you see something out there that catches your eye, try it. You know, like there's, we have a great demo program. There are demo programs, you know, Pretty much everywhere now. I think you like obviously there's there's places in the world where it's harder to demo rackets and stuff. But if you get the opportunity to try some of, you know, see some of the club and they're using a racket you've never tried, you know, go and ask them if you can hit a few balls with it and and give it a whirl. And um, <clears throat> you know, I think you'd be surprised. Definitely, I was definitely a a player's racket guy for a long time, and then you know, rackets like the Pure Drive kind of open my eyes to, to other options. Even when I was using sort of bigger head sizes, they were 12 ounce rackets that were pretty flexible. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was amazed at what, you know, what I could get on the ball with, with something that was going to give me a little bit more pop and, you know, put a poly in it. And now you've got power and spin and it's, it's fun to use. So yeah, just be open-minded and try things. And then, you, you know, even if you end up, back where you were originally at least you know yeah and you went through a, a journey and it, you learned something then obviously you can get lost in the racket testing jungle which uh, <laughs> yeah. is is deep and vast and and tough to get out of <laughs> it's, it's a you can definitely go down the rabbit hole um yeah <laughs> no doubt about it yeah yeah it's cool no that's some good advice there because it's um it, it's usually people and also I have the same thing with the swing weight. Like that's generally what I, I'm comfortable three to five to three thirty strong. That's just my swing weight. And if I go too high above that, it gets tough. Like sometimes I try pro player frames that, you know, they lend me or whatever. And then I'm like, Oh, this place amazing for 30 minutes. And then you're like, okay, now I'm getting a bit late on the ball or it starts feeling heavy. Uh, and then you go lighter, you have this whippiness and you're like, why don't I play with the light racket until you play with a big hitter. And then you're like, okay, this is why I don't play with the light rackets. You know? So it's, you always kind of end up in the similar place, but then you have uh, obviously different options, more power, less power, and, and so on. Right? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've noticed when I've gone up in swing weight too, it, it's easier for me to do with a smaller headed racket. Once it goes 97 and above, um, I need to come back down to my comfort level in, in swing weight. I mean, yeah, just otherwise, like with a heavier, heavier mids, I feel like I, I can still whip them through a little easier. Um, and so that's going to be like serve forehand as well, but serve and backhand is where, you know, I'm going to start to feel the drag of that um, heavier racket with a, with a bigger head size. Whereas if I 95 and lower for sure, it's going to come through a little easier. And so I feel like I can cheat upwards a little bit and get a little bit more swing weight out of a racket. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I, I still love the mids when it's uh, it's not maybe for match play, but it's like such a fun hit to play with a mid-sized racket. That's why it still has like a place, whether it's a Pro Staff 85 or a Prestige Classic, like it, it's just nice to revisit from time to time. And and like you say as well, I mean, Mart Safin, he used, even when he left tennis, he still like were coaching or whatever, he, he still used the Prestige mid, you know, although a, a slightly newer model, but it, it's because that that's what he liked. He liked that kind of whippiness 
despite his swing weight being like 370 or something like that, you know, so very different. Yeah, I'm going to actually let you go now because you've been, uh, I don't want to pester you too much of your time. Uh, you have a, you're a busy man uh, and you're turning 50 tomorrow. So that's a huge, huge day. Yeah. What, what, are, yeah. what are your plans? You're, uh, you, you don't know, you're going to get a huge surprise here. <laughs> uh, so head out for a few beers with, uh, with the crew from work and then uh, just, you know, keeping it pretty light and then uh, dinner with the family after that. And then I think the summer when the weather's good, We'll have a big party, but uh, yeah, keeping it pretty chill for tomorrow. Yeah, good. You deserve it. You, you have a have a chill <laughs> day, and then um, hope to talk to you at some point soon. I mean, we obviously keep in touch, and I would love to come out and visit you guys in uh, for the BMP or or something like that. It's been a while now since I went to the states, so it would be fun. That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd love to have you out here. All right, Chris. Thanks a lot, and have a great birthday tomorrow. Cheers. Thanks, mate. <laughs>